Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. This podcast and its associated research report is sponsored by Kronos. My name is Jenna Filipkowski, and I'm the head of research here at the Human Capital Institute. I'm joined here today by Dr. Linda Reese, managing partner at Leader Onboarding. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So we recently conducted research on onboarding, and we found that 76% of organizations report that onboarding is underutilized. Linda, why is onboarding important, and why aren't organizations realizing its potential? That's a great question. The thing we've learned in two decades of onboarding work is onboarding is a really vitally important part of the talent management process. And sophisticated organizations already are recognizing that and really embracing onboarding. But for many organizations, the connection is not obvious. Um, There's two really big ways that we think that onboarding contributes to talent management. And one is that, you know, when companies hire someone who has potential, onboarding is something that is an assist in speeding their transition. And so a good onboarding process can cause someone to perform at what we define as acceptable performance, which is 80% proficiency, about two months faster than someone who doesn't receive onboarding support. The other benefit of onboarding to talent management is really around building bench strength and driving results. And those two things allow people to perform in the way the organization may hope or envision. And when you retain a high-level leader and they're high-performing, it's good for everyone. There are a few reasons why companies sub-optimize the focus on onboarding or transitions. And the first is, and this is very common, is that companies are just overwhelmed. There's so much going on. There's so much change. um, The pace is so fast that they just don't see their way clear to make the time to do this. They also commonly believe that new hires should be responsible for their own onboarding, which, if you think about it, is a little bit... um, ridiculous, uh, expecting someone to come into this chaos that I just described and understand the culture, understand the role, uh, be able to work relationships and really drive results. It's, it's, It's too much to put on a new person alone. A third reason why companies, we think, don't pay enough attention to onboarding is what we call the myth of fit. And that is the belief that we've hired a great person. And because we've hired a great person and we think they're a good fit for our company, They don't need any additional support. This is probably one of the toughest mindsets to change because companies are very careful about who they select, but where they fall down is that they fail to support the leaders after they transition into the roles. And we feel so strongly about it that we actually recently released a book called The Myth of Fit uh, that describes in detail, you know, what can go wrong and what organizations can do to um, mitigate the risks associated with transition. One more reason that we think that organizations don't spend enough time and attention on onboarding is that they really don't make the connection between onboarding, job satisfaction, retention, and ultimately performance. And, you know, in our chaotic world, one of the things that's happening is that turnover is increasing year over year. According to Bureau of Labor Statistics, 41.9% of all employed people in the United States started a new job in 2016. So just for entry-level jobs where they're low or no skill, 16% of the annual salary is the amount of money that it costs to replace someone who leaves a role. When you move into middle management, it's at least 20% of annual salary. And where we put most of our focus is with senior leaders, 
And for that population, over 200% of annual salary is the typical cost for replacing a derailed or um, departing leader. Um, when you get to the top levels of organizations, presidents, CEOs, and other C-suite members, it can be up to 400% of the annual salary for those leaders. You know, productivity also suffers when turnover happens, and it can take up to two years for someone from the outside to be performing at 100%, so it's really important uh, to focus on onboarding for that reason as well. I think the final reason that organizations don't attend to onboarding as much as they could or benefit as much as they could is that they see onboarding as a cost rather than an investment, and they typically don't understand that a small investment in onboarding helps them achieve ROI for the hire, and it helps them also avoid a significantly greater cost of failure. Thank you. And I'm glad you said about the companies being overwhelmed and, and onboarding is just um, time intensive. I know in our research, we talk about different ways that we could reduce that time and that burden that's placed on um, the manager and also the employee. So thank you for sharing that. And also in our research, we saw that um, one of the best practices for onboarding was a standard, consistent experience across the company. Um, and then coupled with that, on top of that, customizing the content of the onboarding program by role. So I'm curious, what are the, the benefits and drawbacks at customizing the onboarding experience? And when it's customized, what are the most successful approaches to reducing complexity and cost? Well, and that's a great question. I think that the way our perspective on onboarding is that at its core, it's a risk management process. So when when we are supporting clients in looking at customization, what we suggest is that they consider increasing the level of customization with the risk factors associated with transitioning into the role. The issues that are unique to each role or department can be addressed in detail when you customize an onboarding process um, and also the learning associated with being successful in that area. Um, we do think that the potential drawbacks around customization are sustainability and cost. And so if it's too detailed or complicated or not practical, um, that can be one drawback. And also, even if it's great, can they sustain it over time? Because it's um, demoralizing to see processes go into place that can have a positive benefit and then have the organization not be able to continue to support it. We do recommend customizing based on onboarding risk factors, both the types of risk factors and the sheer number of them. And we partner with companies to help them manage the risks associated with onboarding. And we actually believe it's important that they be the ones who deliver most of the aspects of onboarding. They know the most about their organizations. They can build systemic processes internally, and we work with them to help them develop that capability. They tend to call on us to partner with them more closely on the higher risk hires where it's a more complex onboarding and where the level of customization and risk is so great that um, they seek external support. So in your role as a consultant, what have you learned while helping organizations implement their onboarding programs, and what was a hard lesson to learn? I think the most important thing that we learned is that there's a nomenclature problem when we're talking about onboarding, and many organizations will describe their onboarding process, but what we hear is that they're really describing orientation. And so we like to offer an image of onboarding as an umbrella and under onboarding come a variety of activities and tools and processes, one of which is orientation. 
each has their place, each can have impact, but because there's confusion, what we see is that organizations sometimes place more faith in the orientation process than it can actually deliver. It's wonderful to have orientation that can really support that consistency you mentioned earlier where we're teaching people the same thing about culture and expectations and, you know, in general, creating a similar experience, but making a distinction between what onboarding is and what orientation is can help create more realistic expectations and we think better outcomes. Another thing we've learned about transitioning into roles that really doesn't get discussed, and this is a big one for us, is that this transition into the role of the organization can be very emotional for the person who's starting a new job, but it can also be very emotional for the people around them. So new people can become exuberant and that can have a negative effect. They can have personal struggles around the transition where they've got angry teenagers who didn't want to move across the country. Um, and then in terms of others' emotions, they can feel resentful and sometimes they even go so far as to undermine the success of the new people. I think another thing we've learned, and this is a big one for us as well, is that companies are very interested in knowing about how people feel about their transition, but they rarely give those people the opportunity to receive feedback about how effectively they are managing their own transitions. And so we do believe that evaluating the impact of onboarding on the new hire is important, but that organizations who don't evaluate the extent to which the new hires are managing their transitions effectively that we're missing an opportunity. I think finally, and we addressed this pretty extensively in our book, um, the painful lesson that we've learned about transitions is that uh, the job is rarely as it is expected by the new person. And we often bring data forward, especially for high-level leaders, about the role, about other people's expectations, or about the culture. And we may have to share information with them that is really discrepant with what they thought the job was or what they thought their responsibilities are. And we've learned that we have to pay a lot of attention to helping them manage that disappointment and really align themselves better around the expectations that exist for the role as it is when they started. Um, and my final question, what should the first steps be for a company who has neglected onboarding in the past, but wants to start building a program but has zero or a very limited budget? There's a lot of opportunity here, and we would say don't dismay if you haven't built anything in the past and recognize that you have a lot of opportunity to build something that can have impact. It's really important to do some things before actually implementing a process in order to increase the chances of success, and the first is to build a solid business case for it, and we suggest that HR partners and other people who are associated with onboarding really look at the impact that onboarding has on people and on the company. So what's our turnover rate? What does that cost us? How long are we retaining our high risk or our high priority hires? And then also work, you know, in, by including other people in the process to identify metrics and ROI goals um, that they can use to evaluate the effectiveness of onboarding. We have found that once sponsors understand the true cost of derailment and onboarding, that greater financial support may be forthcoming. So starting out with a shoestring budget is not a problem if you really do your homework. Some things that we see organizations do that are low cost and high impact include interviewing or surveying recent hires about their experience, about how engaged they are, about the difference between the job they expected and got, 
having similar kinds of conversations in exit interviews so when people leave, you understand why they're truly leaving and what we could do differently to help retain people in the future. We also think it's important to be strategic in thinking about onboarding, and this doesn't cost anything either, which is identify the pain points for the turnover. So if it's a high-tech company, are we having the highest turnover among our most expensive programmers? You know, if so, they may warrant extra attention, and this is an area where customization can come in. Also, where is turnover just most destructive? Where does it run the risk of undermining our strategy as an organization? We do think that it's important to do research on onboarding best practices, and there are several LinkedIn groups. There's lots of information available online. And then to filter it and really combine it with the things that you believe work best for your organization and sort of experiment to see what works best here. The last thing in terms of building an onboarding process is really remembering that onboarding starts when a candidate applies for the job. So what does the selection process tell employees about the company? How does it make them feel? And how could that influence how they actually start their jobs? Phase two of building an onboarding process, having laid a solid foundation, is to then implement the component pieces of the process. So one of the things is that the orientation process should streamline paperwork and focus on the company, its values, and culture to create consistency and ease of transition. One thing we don't talk about much is the dissatisfiers in transition. So there are a lot of things that new employees expect to have in place on the first day of their jobs that the company can't get a lot of credit for for doing right, like having a workspace designated, having a laptop available, having a phone line, having a credit card, et cetera. Um, those are expected, and all the company can do by not doing it is dissatisfy their employees. So a best practice that we've seen across many different kinds of organizations is creating a checklist of all the things that need to be in place by an employee's first day. Um, that can really help create more consistency and experience, but also make sure that those pesky little dissatisfiers are being addressed. Another thing is that simple things like welcoming rituals get noticed. So I walked into a client's office recently, and he'd been in this position for four or five months. And on his bookcases, he had a variety of different tchotchkes from the organization that had been given to him in a welcome basket. And he said that was one of the most powerful things that he experienced because it was sitting on his desk waiting for him when he started his job. This is a slightly different direction, but we think it's vitally important, which is an effective onboarding process. The hiring manager and the HR partner really need to connect early and often with a new hire. And we recommend doing that by setting a formal way for them to talk about the role and expectations and then keep doing that over time because the role and expectations are going to evolve. Finally, I think uh, we think that Making sure that feedback gets exchanged during and after the onboarding process is important, and that should be ongoing as well, from the new hire and to the new hire. Once these things are in place and they're done over time, it will be an opportunity to then demonstrate uh, the ROI and the impact that the organization is experiencing from onboarding. Uh, this is when we suggest they pitch for additional onboarding budget uh, once they've demonstrated results having used very few organizational resources. Well, thank you so much for enlightening us about the onboarding topic. I know it's one of my favorite topics and we're very excited to have new research on it. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jenna. Thank you for having me. I also like to thank all of you for tuning in and I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy what you've heard. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, and on the YouTube channel, HCI Talent. 
Lastly, one more big thank you to Linda. And from Nine to Thrive HR and all of us at HCI, thank you for listening.